Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet to... Ever wonder how... Ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet for anyone to see? The answer is more than you think. Government records, social media posts, even your self-reported info, it's all being compiled by data brokers and sold to the highest bidders online. Anyone on the web can get your private details. This can lead to a higher risk of identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. I hate those spam calls. Well, I recently found a solution, and this is a new service called Delete Me. When I registered with Delete Me, they reviewed nearly 1,500 online listings and found more than 40 data brokers that had my personal info, my address, social security number, even info about my relatives. It's creepy stuff. Right at this moment, Delete Me is working to remove my information from those listings so I can take back control of my personal info and have a peace of mind I deserve and you deserve. Delete Me is on a mission to safeguard your privacy, and right now you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan. When you go to joindeleteme.com slash Joe, use promo code Joe. Only way to get your 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Joe. Enter promo code Joe at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Joe. Promo code Joe. Stay safe out there. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Had I not been a part of a team, had I not developed this network, these relationships, I would not have gotten into that deal and some of the development opportunities that I mentioned. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Clive Davis. Clive is joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. He is the founding principal of Park Royal Capital. They own and operate multifamily as well as develop ground up, residential, and mixed use. Clive's portfolio consists of being a GP on 750 units, an LP on 2,000 units, and 90-acre development, and a 142-unit multifamily development. Clive, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing great, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Clive, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? 
Yeah, so background is I started out as a corporate transactional lawyer, Wall Street firm, New York City, right out of law school. I did that for several years before transitioning to the pharmaceutical industry, starting out as an in-house counsel for Pfizer, and then later went on to be a chief compliance officer for a Belgian pharma. So all in all, a 20-year corporate career. I invested in real estate throughout that 20-year corporate career, but it was always small stuff, uh, duplex, onesies, twosies, five unit. And at the end of 2016 is when I made my great escape from corporate life and transitioned to what I'm doing today full-time, which is owning, operating, investing in large-scale multifamily and more broadly commercial real estate. What was it about the timing that made it right for you to leave corporate America and go off on your own? I was getting old, Ash. <laughs> so at that point, I was in my mid-40s. A lot was going on on the personal front. My oldest child at the time was probably about seven plus months away from heading off to college and being the first kid out of the house. My mom at the time was down in Cape Coral, Florida, bouncing between hospital, nursing home, and home in that triangle. And I wasn't getting to see her in person as much as I wanted to. So I just needed to take control of my time at that particular time. So 2016, at the end, I just pulled the plug and said, I've earned the right after 20 years to go reclaim my time and do with it what I want to do. And that's when I started in earnest with the, the focus on the scale of real estate that I'm doing now. And what was your entry into real estate at that time? So the first thing I did after leaving corporate life was I went and bought a five unit. And the reason I ended up buying the five unit was that was the fewest number of units that I could get into that qualified as commercial. And after having walked away from a W-2, I no longer had that W-2 or the pay stubs to show when the banker says we need two years of tax returns and pay stubs covering the last 30 days, which is typical if you're buying a one to four unit or trying to refi your personal home, those are the two things that they're going to lead with. So if you don't have one of those two, they're going to ask you that question in three or four different ways, trying to get to the same answer. So I couldn't provide that. So I said, let me just try the, the five unit. And it turned out, I don't even think they ever asked me what I did for a living. They didn't ask me for pay stubs. I just needed to show up at closing with whatever I needed for the, the closing costs and miscellaneous. And, and, and that's what I did. So that broke me in. It was really a proof of concept. Yeah, Clive, you've been dabbling in real estate for 20 years, but do you really want to do this as your full-time thing? I got renovated in a unit, evicting a hoarder, renovating and refreshing other units, all of that on this five unit, but it was a lot in a very condensed period of time. I bought that in 17, ended up selling that two weeks into COVID at March 31st of 2020, did really well on that. And I just said, no more small stuff. Let's go pursue the bigger stuff. Clive, my guess is because you left a full-time career and now you've got one five-unit property to deal with, you were hands-on. You did a lot of the renovations. You were on site. You self-managed. Is that right? Absolutely. Up until my first large multifamily, the duplex that I had, the apartment in New York, the five unit in Florida, all of that I self-managed from wherever I was, whether I was in New York, whether I was in Atlanta, I always self-managed. That's all I knew. So outsourcing management to a third party was something I would 
become familiar with when I got in at a bigger scale. Now, if you think back, giving your 2017 self advice, what would you have done differently? I think I could have probably compressed timelines and I probably didn't need to do the five unit. I could have embarked on that journey towards large scale multifamily sooner. So when I think about what would I do differently looking back at that time period, that's probably it. It's everything that I did, I could have pulled it sooner in the timeline and just embarked on that journey earlier. Would you have still done it yourself or would you have outsourced the renovations? On the five unit, I probably would not have done the five unit. I would have skipped that altogether. Again, I wasn't a, a brand new landlord for, like I said, a, my first real estate investment property was back in 1999. I bought a duplex and I held it all the way up until 2018. So I had exposure to being a landlord and self-managing before that. The five unit clearly was more intense and more hands-on. Literally, I was there at the property overseeing contractors and plumbers and what have you and handling the eviction myself and doing all of these things. So it was a good, like I said, proof of concept that, yeah, you actually do like this stuff. It does get your juices flowing. So then it was just really, how do I figure out how to get into these larger deals that I see from a distance, but really don't know how those deals are done? So basically what I did is I designed what I jokingly refer to as Clive's self-directed real estate MBA, which was comprised of me moving all of my 401k retirement funds from my prior employment into a self-directed IRA. Over the course of 12 to 18 months, I invested in probably 10 or 11 commercial real estate deals, primarily multifamily, but also some other things in there to diversify things, both geographically and asset type. I also invested in some hotels here in Atlanta. So that gave me some insight as to what do these deals look like? What are the business plans? What's the capital stack? What does investor relations look and feel like, at least from the passive investor side? So I tended to invest in deals that were of the type that I aspired to do, whether that was going to be one, two years down the line. But that was kind of my approach. I then sought out opportunities for mentorship, as well as attended multifamily conferences listening to podcasts like this one was clearly one that was in heavy rotation back in that 2016, 2017 timeframe. So all of that I was doing to position myself to eventually step into the shoes of a sponsor of these types of deals. What was that first deal? So the first deal, 244 units for just under 30 million. We raised eight and a quarter million in equity and we closed that in late 2021. And I tell people that I didn't just decide I was going to do this and then a deal landed in my lap. My very first LOI or letter of intent that I submitted was in the spring of 2019 on a 92 unit. I remember it well here in Stone Mountain, Georgia. We didn't get it. Someone wanted to pay 300K more than we wanted to pay. So we were runners up. And I said, oh, okay, I'll get a deal next month or the month thereafter. And fast forward and including the whole COVID period, at the end of the day, it took me the better part of two years from that first offer to land in my first deal. But I went from five units to the 244 unit deal that I just mentioned. 
Was that frustrating spending two years submitting offers and not landing anything? Yeah, if you're human, there's definitely points of frustration in there. I just put out a post today that said, when you're running a marathon, your best bet is to run at your pace, the pace that you trained at. So you can't look at someone who's running a six-minute mile at the starter gun, and you've been training at seven minutes 45, and then you're going to try and keep pace with them. So I really didn't pay attention to those people who had the fortune of getting into a deal in three months after deciding they were going to do it. That's great. That wasn't my reality. You've just got to recognize and appreciate that the things that you're doing over that period, for me, it was two years, whatever it is for you, recognize that even before you get that win on the table, the things that you're doing are acting in furtherance of you achieving your objective. So you can't put a timestamp on it. If I pulled the plug after 12 months and said, I've been trying this for 12 months, it hasn't worked, I'm going back to corporate, I wouldn't be experiencing some of the success that I'm experiencing today. So definitely can be frustrating, but that's part of the journey you sign up for. Clive, I'm assuming you never raised capital before. And on this deal, you raised $8.5 million. How did you do that? So as you know, Ash, it's really a team sport. So that deal and deals I've done subsequently, I've done as part of a team. So that team of four core partners, including myself, I was the only partner who hadn't previously raised funds for a deal like this. So I was kind of the wild card as to, well, I can guesstimate what I might raise, but I have really no foundation to say I can raise X. So that was a new experience for me. It's one that I'm not the fondest about capital raising. I've gotten better with each deal, but that's something that is essential to doing these deals. And it's, it's not one person's responsibility. It's anyone who's associated with the deal has a network that they should be looking to tap into. And I certainly tapped into my network. How much of that $8.5 million did you raise? I think I raised about one six, one seven of the eight and a quarter that we raised and the others raised the balance. And how did you do that? Because you've never raised capital before. Yeah. So one thing I tell people is that I actually started doing podcast interviews well before I landed my first deal. So, you know, I say that and people say, what were you talking about? Well, I was talking about making a transition from corporate life and being an aspiring deal sponsor of these deals. So I talked about my passive investing experience. I talked about leaving corporate behind and making the transition and what were some of the substantive things that I was doing to get prepared. So I did three or four podcast interviews just talking about that. And so in addition to pushing out that content via social media, I would just on a regular basis just talk about my journey. And I found that my journey resonated with people in particular, if they were still in a job or in corporate life, and perhaps they had aspirations of doing something different, but hadn't quite seen it pulled off or hadn't quite seen anyone within their network who had done it successfully. So just sharing my journey enabled me to reconnect with people all the way back to undergrad. So undergrad, first job, earlier jobs. It just gave me an opportunity to reconnect with people. And that ultimately facilitates capital raising. I tell people the time to raise capital is not when you need it. You've got to be doing a ton of work 
in lead up to when you're going to need those funds. So it's really the preparation that I did long before that deal in 2021 where we needed to raise funds. In addition to podcasts and social media, did you do a newsletter? Did you pick up the phone, let people know what you're working on? Yeah, so most of that came later. So I didn't have a website up and running until I think spring of 2022. So this is after my first deal. So I dove into go get you a deal and figure that out even before I had the website, which is really your online business presence. I was certainly putting out posts on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn. At that time, later, I added Instagram to that. But some of the things I did perhaps backwards or differently than others do from a timeline standpoint, I put all of my focus on getting a deal. The social media piece was something that I was doing, like I said, consistently. And then later on, I added the website. I added my monthly newsletter, just went out today. So that's something I've been consistently doing for just over a year now. And what does it mean to be consistent on social media? How often were you posting? For the last year, I've been posting two to three posts every week, in addition to the newsletter that falls during that time period. Before that, I was posting, but I would say there wasn't a consistency to it. This week, it might be three posts. Next week, it may be one. The week after, depending on what I'm doing, it might have been zero. So it was somewhat erratic. And I would say in the last year is when I really brought some discipline and, and some support to help me ensure that I'm consistent, regardless of what I'm doing, two to three posts will go out on at least three platforms every week. And are they the same posts or are they unique per platform? Same posts. In addition to those two to three, sometimes I will supplement it with something that's more spontaneous, but the two to three posts that go out are the same across those three platforms. All right. So you've got a fair amount of education. You've invested as an LP. You've got the landlord experience and you find this large deal. You don't have the capital yourself or within your network. How did you find partners to come on the deal with you? And how did you establish credibility? Because you don't have track record on this scale. All great question. And I would say the partners that I found for that first deal and subsequent deals that I've done, I found them all through the mentoring program that I joined. And so I met them there, one person in particular who we hit it off. So for the two years that I was submitting LOIs and being a runner-up or a bridesmaid, but never a bride, I had one primary partner who we had connected and he had said, hey, I have deals in Florida, I have deals in DFW, we don't have anything in Atlanta. You're there in Atlanta if you're pursuing deals there and the timing works out and I'm not otherwise preoccupied, I'd be glad to be your partner. So we hit it off and the two of us were primarily underwriting and looking at deals or I was underwriting and sharing deals with him. And then when we landed that first deal, we pulled in two other partners to round out the team. So uh, again, going back to that two years of pursuing deals, I was also able to develop a relationship with my chosen partner and determine that there was compatibility there rather than finding a deal and then scrambling to find a partner and hoping it worked out. So again, although I didn't land a deal in that two-year period, 
I was making progress towards my goal and laying a foundation for that first deal and subsequent deals. So you spent time, in addition to educating yourself, building out your network. Absolutely. What are some mistakes that you made and what are some of the really great things you did in terms of networking? Networking, I will say during my 20-year corporate career, I had a low respect for networking. At least I perceived it as not being essential to my success. So when I got into real estate with a full-time focus, that's where I really appreciated the power of networking and my perception of networking totally flip-flopped from what I had before. So when I would go to conferences, and even to this day, when I go to conferences, my measure of the success of my networking is not who I met at the conference, but what of those relationships have I been able to develop and nurture after the conference and maintain because you can hit it off with someone at a conference and then you don't talk to them for another 12 months. But I was very purposeful with my follow-up. If I connected with someone and I felt that there was a good chemistry there, I was very mindful and intentional about following up with them, setting up a Zoom call. If they were local, setting up an opportunity to break bread so I just became very intentional about my network. And I think uh, if you're thinking about partners or prospective partners, again, I talk about the importance of vetting your partners much like you would a romantic partner. So you would never have a first date. I shouldn't say never. It's rare that you would go on a first date and be, I'm marrying her. She's great. <laughs> but yet I go to conferences and I see even to this day, people will go to a conference and then I'll see some post or something where all of a sudden now they're doing a deal together. And I'm like, how long have you guys known each other? And they're like, oh, we met at the conference last month. And so that works for some. For me, I need more dates under my belt before I jump into bed with anyone. Clive, what are some things you could have done better in terms of networking? I would say I was not well organized. So at the time, I didn't have a CRM. I was still fumbling with business cards, elastic bands and shoe boxes and entering stuff in manually. So the biggest improvement I would point to is my better organization, having a methodology to, okay, you just went to this conference, you met 125 people, figuring out who among them you want to have that immediate follow-up with, getting them into my database. I just became more disciplined and more organized about that. Early on, I probably didn't know what I didn't know, and we're all learning as we go, but I just got much better with that with time. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, 
visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. You moved on to developing residential and mixed use. How did that happen? I'm a big proponent of manifestation. So I had said very early on in my multifamily acquisition journey that at some point I was going to get into development. It was just a matter of when, not if. So I put that out there enough times. I've probably said that on a podcast. And then as an outgrowth of my networking, I got connected with someone who my now partner on the development side for one of our projects, we were connected by a mutual friend. The mutual friend said, hey, Dominique, you should meet Clive. He's doing this multifamily stuff. Hey, Clive, you should meet Dominique. She's looking to develop this community. She's the founder of the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival. You guys would probably hit it off. So we connected and I learned about her vision for this culinary-centric community that she was developing. And fast forward, after multiple dates, we determined that it would be great for us to develop this community together. And so that one kind of found me. I didn't set out to say, I'm going to go do this specifically, but that came out of networking. <clears throat> networking relationship grew into what is now a 90-acre mixed-use community development. What is your primary role in all of these projects? With respect to the development project, what I am learning is that there are so many facets to these deals that, at least at the stage that I'm at or we're at, it's really a all hands on deck. So we're in the pre-development stages. So a big part of what we're focused on right now is in addition to getting our land disturbance permit approved, which we're anticipating in knock on wood two weeks, there's a big part of nailing down debt and equity. So that's a big part of what we do on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis. I'll get into Zoom calls. I'll be meeting with family offices, individual investors, private equity, lenders. That's a big chunk of it. Once we get to the point of breaking ground, obviously that's going to look very different and the focus is going to be different, different stage of development. But our team is small and intimate, so it's not like we have a far-flung team where we have the luxury of being able to be specialists on one particular area of development. Part of my desire to get into development was really to learn the A to Zs of it. Whether I'm the primary lead on something or not, more often than not, I want to be a part of those meetings. I want to have an understanding and appreciation for any and all of those aspects even as I'm learning while flying the plane. Clive, the 244-unit deal that you did, that was purchased in 2021. Was that a fixed interest rate or was that interest-only, variable rate? 311 bridge, so variable rate. We do have a rate cap on that deal, but it's a 311. So we're approaching our two-year anniversary on that first deal and we still have a 15 plus months left on the initial term. Can you explain what a 311 is? Yes, it's basically you have a three-year loan and then the 1-1 one -one is the option to extend it for an initial 12-month period and then a second 12-month period. So you have that option and hopefully your lender allows you and the 
deal is in a position and in shape such that they would be inclined to extend that option if you need it, assuming you're still in ownership at that time. We are in September of 2023. You've got 15 months left. The Fed's talking about further rate hikes. What does that do to the deal? What kind of pressure does it put on it? Yes, the refinance scenario that is part of our underwriting. Suffice to say, refinancing today does not look like we or I think pretty much anyone anticipated it would look like in terms of available leverage, in terms of where interest rates are, where cap rates are. So what it does for us is more likely than not, we've got another 15 months. So we're going to be watching the market. We're going to be seeing what rate cap pricing is looking like. We're going to be seeing, is this an opportune time based upon the forced depreciation we've been able to achieve? Is it the right time to sell? And if so, what would a potential sale look like? So we pretty much look at all of the options and we're paying attention to the market like everyone else. But we think based upon the performance of that deal in particular, which has done really well, while the market might not necessarily be recognizing that right now, I'm optimistic that the market will look different in 15 months than it does today. What do you think the market will look like in 15 months? I think we'll have 15 months more under our belt and we're improving NOI on a month over month basis. So I think specifically that our deal will be in a much stronger position. And therefore, I think it will be more attractive if sale is right at that time. And if it's not, I think we'll be more attractive as a refi option. We'll be better positioned to refi in 15 months from today than we are today. So I think interest rates 15 months from now will be lower than they are today. But I'm no economist, and anything that I would share with you along those lines would be me regurgitating what I've heard someone with more expertise than, than myself say. What was the purchase cap rate on that property? I want to say that that was probably low fours. I don't remember specifically on that deal, but probably low four, just above four would be my, my recollection. To the best of your knowledge, what are assets similar to that in a similar market trading for today? cap rate? Yeah, I would say that they're probably in the low five range, five and a quarter. It's going to vary, but I think suffice to say it's probably a hundred basis points higher than where we were at the end of towards 2021. And that puts a lot of pressure on your NOI. You've got to continue to cut expenses, continue to raise rents. Do you know just that hundred basis points, what it did to the value of that property? Well, I can tell you that we underwrote it with an exit. I think the exit cap rate on that, I want to say was at least five and a quarter. So we didn't assume that cap rates were going to remain still or stable. So we built in that appreciation in cap rates. Your exit plan was a higher cap rate by a hundred basis points. In the pro forma, when you exited, did you have different interest rate scenarios? To the extent we looked at interest rates, it would have been in the refi scenario. So I think we had in our underwriting an assumed refi in year two or three. I think it was probably year three. So we had assumptions built in there as to what where interest rates would be. 
And I would say that we probably built in 75 to 100 basis points higher in terms of interest rates. I'd have to go back and look at the specific underwriting. It's been a while. Got it. And Clive, investors seem to be fairly spooked relative to what they were two years ago. What are you doing differently to attract investors to your deals? It's doing deals a little bit differently. So we just closed a deal at the end of June. We acquired a 295 unit in Northwest Arkansas. That is a HUD loan assumption. So it's a HUD loan assumption with an interest rate of 3.49% with 38 years remaining on the term. And so as we spent a lot of time talking about interest rates and cap rates and all of that, but when you're trying to get potentially spooked investors off the fence, you want to take as much risk off the table, at least in their eyes, as you can. And so being able to say that, look, we have fixed rate debt, that is probably half of what the interest rate would be if we were to put new debt onto this deal. So you can take that risk off the table. Additionally, we were able to acquire that deal at a very low leverage. So I think our leverage is probably 52 or 53% levered. So that also takes some fear out of prospective investors because they know not only are interest rates not a concern, at least at a micro level, but you also are better positioned to weather any storms because you're not highly leveraged. You're not 80% leveraged. So that helps them get a little bit more comfortable. So being open to and doing a deal with HUD debt is something that I probably would have told you 18 months, two years ago, HUD, why would I do that? That takes up to nine months to navigate that. And that's a pain. So just being open to doing deals differently than I've done them previously, I think is something that has enabled us to attract investors. And on that deal, that's the biggest deal I've been involved with to date. And we were able to raise 38 million in equity. So bigger than all of the deals I'd done combined before that. And so to be able to raise 38 million in equity in this environment with all of the noise that you're alluding to, I think it goes to the deal being compelling in terms of interest rate, leverage, and then market. All of those things combined helped us get that deal done. Clive, how are you finding deals today? It's no different than it was with my first deal. These are publicly offered deals. I've given up on finding great off-market deals of this scale. So when someone comes knocking and says they have this great off-market 200-unit deal, I usually look at them with some degree of skepticism because typically you don't have the mom-and-pop sellers who aren't going to give it to one of the big brokerage firms, but are going to give you an opportunity to buy their 200 units. So almost exclusively, the things that I look at are publicly available deals. And if they're not publicly out there, the brokerage firm is sharing it with me and 23 of their other closest clients or friends. And when you find those deals, there's a lot of people that are willing to overpay for properties. How are you winning them? Well, we haven't won a deal since that deal that I just described, which went under contract in December of 22. We closed it June 30th. So we've not won a new existing asset acquisition during that time. I just recently started underwriting opportunities again and touring opportunities. I will tell you that there's still money chasing these deals. I would say it's not as hectic as I recall it. I've offered on deals where there were 
48 offers and they whittled it down to the best and final. So while we're not seeing that degree of chase, there's still a, a substantial number of people who are always going to be interested in quality assets. So I just think you've got to look at your underwriting and be disciplined with respect to your underwriting. And if it's a go after you've underwritten it with your rigid criteria, you pursue it aggressively. And I walk away from lots of deals. If I don't feel that I can be competitive, then it's not for me. What are your typical returns to investors? Typical returns. I've seen these ratchet down over time. When we take on our deals, we generally have a five-year horizon that we communicate to our investors. Our objective during those five years is to double their capital. So if you invest 100K with us, our goal is to return 200,000 to you. The lion's share of that is going to come from sale of proceeds. Some of it may come from a cash-out refi, if it makes sense for the deal. And then increasingly smaller portion might come from quarterly distributions once those begin. But that's our objective. I don't really have an IRR target. Most of my investors don't really understand or care about IRR. They want to know, Clive, if I give you 100K, when it's all said and done, what should I expect to get back? And so that's where I would be striving to put 200K back in their pocket. Do you advertise a preferred return for a certain amount? We have not offered preferred returns on the deals that I've been involved with. And looking back now and, and seeing where we are now, I'm actually quite glad that we took that approach. And I know a lot of deals do offer that. That's just something we have not offered as part of the deals that I've been involved with. So is it typical that your investors do not receive any money up until refi or sale? No, it's not typical. Usually we will commence paying quarterly distributions five to six months after takeover. We'll pay out whatever's accrued up until that point, and then we'll pay on a quarterly basis thereafter. So that's been more typical. In recent times, we've suspended distributions as we've just wanted to build reserves for our assets and ensure that we're being prudent and not paying out distributions that we may end up needing at some point further down the line. How was that conversation with investors, if they're accustomed to receiving quarterly distributions for some amount, and then you have to tell them that you're pausing, my guess is you're telling them you're pausing indefinitely? Yeah. The noise that you mentioned, our investors are hearing that noise too. So they're not oblivious to what's going on in the greater market. They've seen an unprecedented run up in interest rates that we haven't seen in 40 years or so they're paying attention to those things. So usually our investors are sophisticated enough where they're not blindly investing with us without any regard for what's going on in the greater market. So you basically educate them as to why you're making the decision. And this is not a complicated discussion. It's wanting to make sure that you're doing the prudent thing and the best thing for the deal. And everyone wants to avoid the capital call. <laughs> so preserving your reserves or building your reserves enables you to make that possibility more remote than not. Clive, you've done a great job of scaling in a short amount of time. What's the secret to that? I think I could do better, but I would say that the secret comes down to teams. So again, the deal that we just closed in June, 
that was not one that I found or sourced like earlier deals. Here in Atlanta, this is a deal in Northwest Arkansas where I have no connections, no ties. One of my partners had been trying to break into that market since 2019 and finally got a great asset there and invited me to join him and other partners in getting that deal done. So had I not been a part of a team, had I not developed this network, these relationships, I would not have gotten into that deal and some of the development opportunities that I mentioned. Again, this wasn't me finding land and coming up with a plan and developing these things on my own. It was me joining with another partner or partners and hopefully associating myself with a strong team. Clive, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right, Clive, what's the best ever book you recently read? Recently read. It was the Will Smith autobiography. The reason I struggled is because I was both reading an actual copy of it as well as listening to the audio book. And I predominantly listened to the audio book. But it was Will Smith's memoir, which I read and found to provide fascinating insight into this guy who has a really interesting background and provides a lot of insight to some of his recent challenges. Let's say that. And Clive, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Best way I like to give back is to share my journey. I'm a big believer of each one teach one. So I think I have an obligation. If I know something, if I'm further ahead in my journey than someone who's, who's behind me, I have an obligation to share with them. So I do that on a regular basis. The other thing that I do is the last eight years, I have had a scholarship that I've raised funds for for high school students from the high school or the high school area that I attended back in New Jersey in memory of one of my classmates who is no longer with us. So each year we raise funds in his name and it goes to deserving high school students who are looking to make the jump to college. Clive, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Best way to get a hold of me is to go directly to my website, which is parkroyalcapital.com. And there are all a bunch of ways to connect with me. I'm on social media, but I would start with my website. Clive, thank you so much for joining us today. A great example of somebody leaving corporate America, educating themselves, building your network, and accomplishing a tremendous amount in a very short amount of time. So thank you for that. I appreciate it, Ash. Once again, thanks for having me. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.